Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the AGA Podcast, small talk, big topics. I'm Matthew Whitson, and today with CS. Hey, CS, how are you? Hey, Matt. I'm doing well. Yourself? I am good. I am cold in New York in the winter. How are you? How is Providence? in Rhode Island next door. Oh, my God. Providence in the winter. Is water fire still happening? That's what I really need. Canceled. Canceled. Ooh. Oh, I guess. Yeah. You know, COVID. No no gathering. (laughs) No gathering is the big thing there. So you have just completed the Crohn's Colitis Congress. You have just attended it. Uh, Today, our guest is Dr. David Rubin, one of the co-chairs of the Congress, the division chair at University of Chicago, IBD clinician extraordinaire. Tell me about this event that you just went to. Tell me about this conference and tell me what you're excited about. I know you've been uh, pitching David Rubin as a guest for quite some time. I know. We're so honored to have him chat with us. And we did gather, but virtually. So he'll talk about what's it like to plan a virtual conference, what's the difference, and actually a surprising benefit that came out as a virtual mm, rather true. than in-person setting. That was quite um, a surprise for us that we we didn't know. For, for example, our attendees, are they going to be fewer or more? Um, they also talk about content in terms of transformative research in the area and the clinical era. And at something at the forefront of all our minds is COVID, particularly with IBD population. They're mm-hmm. on immunosuppressants. They maybe have a flare. They have more hospital encounters and ED encounters. How does that change and affect our IBD population? And how should we as practitioners approach that? And we also talk about the vaccine. Now that's coming out for um, not only providers, but patients. How should, should we tell our patients to get it? Should we time their medicine differently or not? Um, so Dr. Rubin will tell us all about it. Yeah, no, I, that's it's interesting. I feel like I have been pulled aside by more staff in the hospital to ask if they should get the vaccine because they have Crohn's or UC. They're not my patient, but they're asking because that is a question in that community. So I think um, Dr. Rubin's addressing that was very, very helpful. And, and I genuinely love talking to him about his mentors and how he mentors young physicians who are thinking about IBD or maybe want to go somewhere else. I actually found that to be really enjoyable and his advice to be really wise. I mean, yeah, and it's all here for us, for all of you to listen to. Yeah, no, it's absolutely great. So let's get to it. Uh, This is our episode with Dr. David Rubin and thanks for listening. So Dr. David Rubin, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, I'm David Rubin. I'm at the University of Chicago, where I am a professor, and I'm also the chief of the section of gastroenterology, hepatology, and nutrition. And I have been also the chair of the organizing committee for the Crohn's and Colitis Congress for the last two years. So, Dr. Rubin, you and Dr. Sands just chaired the Crohn's and Colitis Congress, which just ended like one hour ago. Tell us this year, you know, it's virtual as with a lot of other conferences, but from an organizer's perspective, how was it like for you? Can you give us an inside peek on the background? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks for chatting about the Congress. And for those who didn't miss it, don't worry, we're going to hit the highlights now and tell you a little bit about what went on. The Crohn's and Colitis Congress was in its fourth year this year, and it's actually a partnership between the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation and the American Gastroenterological Association. So Bruce Sands from Mount Sinai, New York, and I co-chaired the organizing committee for it this year, Bruce representing the AGA and I representing the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation because I'm the chair-elect of their scientific advisory committee. The meeting itself uh, has grown over the years to be a meeting not just to provide clinical updates, but importantly, to provide research updates, as well as networking opportunities and career development opportunities for our colleagues. Obviously, the challenge this year, as with all of our meetings, was pivoting to be a virtual meeting. And it wasn't just about figuring out what platform to use and how to make sure that we were able to secure the right faculty who could then deliver lectures in this format. The second issue was that by the time this meeting occurred, which was just, as you mentioned, in the last few days, this third week of January in 2021, people were pretty zoomed out 
you know, we've all attended virtual meetings throughout the year. And what would another meeting offer and were people going to tune in? And we were absolutely thrilled to learn that we had the highest attendance ever. We had 1,400 people pre-register and then more who came in once the meeting had gotten started. And that's just a testament to people's need to connect and their interest in the material. So, I mean, first off, that's pretty incredible. So congratulations on that. How do you guys go about choosing the topics you want covered? And how do you go about choosing what speakers you want to invite? Is that just something as an expert in the field you have an inkling on? Or is that something you're kind of polling your colleagues about to see what they want to learn? It's truly a testament to the organizing committee, which is made up of 20 to 30 of our colleagues across all the stakeholder groups, which means not just our physician colleague, colleagues in IBD, but also our trainees who are part of the organizing committee, as well as advanced practice providers, nurses, and then within the gastroenterology community, both our pediatric colleagues, as well as our adult gastroenterologists, but also very importantly, our research colleagues. So the organizing committee is charged with what are the most important topics, who are the most uh, valuable and engaging speakers with the additional charge of making sure we had diversity represented. We really made that a priority this year. And I'm just thrilled and proud of how much of that became part of this meeting. Uh, But then also what's gonna be the theme? How do we push the field forward? So this isn't just meant to be a CME meeting. This is meant to be a meeting to get us aligned, not just in the U.S., but truly in many ways around the world with the priorities in IBD. And then the other piece to this is we actually have patient stakeholders as part of planning. So I think that it's intentional that we have all these people at the table so that the content, the topics, and the speakers represent what we really believe is the best of the best of the best in the field in order to advance the science, the training, and the research and and care in IBD. What was the theme for 2021? Let's start there. Well, there were a few different themes. Obviously, one of the sessions that was highly attended was one all about COVID, right? So you're not surprised to hear that. But of course, our patient population with inflammatory bowel disease has had some specific interests and concerns about COVID. So we had a session that was not only about how has COVID affected IBD patients and what should we do about vaccinating our patient population, but then separately, how do you monitor IBD given that we moved to this telehealth model of care and how do you adjust therapies based on the targets of monitoring. So that was one major theme. Another major theme was the advances we're making in clinical care in terms of recognizing more objective endpoints for control. So a major effort of the conference and our educational priority was trying to get everyone on the same page about the value not just of improving symptoms, which is critically important, but pairing that with objective measures to show we really have turned off the the disease uh, from an inflammation point of view. And then the other themes had to do with, for example, in pediatrics, what are the unique concerns about uh, the pediatric gastros and, of course, the unique situations that children with IBD have that we need to be paying more attention to? And then within the research uh, areas, Obviously, ongoing emphasis and interest in how the microbiome might inform some of what we're missing in IBD, but uh, also some really intriguing work looking at some uh, additional ways that we can incorporate uh, mental health and a variety of other multidisciplinary approaches to the research efforts that we have in IBD. Really um, spectacular. As much as I was chairing the meeting and knew what we were going to be talking about coming in, I found that I learned more at this meeting than I have at at probably any meeting in the last few years. Uh, So I was just so pleased and delighted and and, uh, really uh, thrilled with my colleagues' participation and all that they brought to the table. Dr. Rubin, could we dive into a little deeper about the most attended session, the COVID-19 and managing IBD? So what are some of the best practices that came out of it or new approaches? 
Sure. Yes, thank you. Well, one of the things that was emphasized, we had great presentations by both Ryan Ngaro, who's at Mount Sinai in New York, and then Erica Brenner, who's a pediatric GI fellow at UNC in Chapel Hill. And they both were part of this secure IBD registry that was created, this international registry of tracking IBD and COVID. And they each presented. So Erica presented on um, pediatric uh, COVID and Ryan presented just the general database and some other information. So the first thing that they they drove home was that uh, in general, the outcomes of patients with IBD who get COVID are not worse than the general population. There's not a special risk by having IBD. And that's including looking at all the therapies our patients receive. So that's an important and reassuring message. And it goes along with the general message of we wanted our patients to stay on their maintenance therapies, to stay in remission during this time period. There were some exceptions. They, there's a, a sub-study from that secure IBD registry that's published in GUT and in press right now, which Ryan shared the results that suggested that thiopurines and combination therapy of thiopurines with anti-TNF may have a higher risk of certain bad outcomes with COVID. So that was part of a discussion that we had as a group and whether or not that is an artifact of the way the registry is built with voluntary submissions and perhaps a bias towards sicker patients or whether that's a real effect of immune suppression in the setting of this infectious disease. Uh, and then there was also the ongoing discussion that 5-ASA seems to be associated with some worse outcomes with COVID. And that doesn't make biological sense, but it's something that's been seen uh, consistently as they've done these analyses. So trying to figure out again whether this is a methodological error or some observational bias or whether there's something we don't understand about 5-ASA that might be making COVID worse. So that was one whole part of it. Then we were fortunate to have Britta Sigmund, who's the president of the European Crohn's and Colitis Organization, as one of the other speakers during this session. Uh, Dr. Sigmund was asked to cover the uh, use of monitoring and different biomarkers of disease activity in her presentation. So it wasn't specific to COVID, but it's related to this movement in our field towards objective measures of disease. And she gave a beautiful lecture uh, talking both about the standard monitoring with fecal calprotectin, CRP, but also some emerging tools for monitoring. And then also the um, very important use of small intestinal and even colonic bedside ultrasound as a way to assess the disease activity, which hasn't been available yet in the US and which we're very interested in. I gave a talk during that same session on de-escalation and escalation of therapy and tried to provide some of the data and some guidance about how to do that properly, either to get your patient into remission if they're not there or when it might be safe and how you might approach withdrawing a therapy. So to pair right off of what Ryan did in his presentation, suggesting that maybe combination therapy with TNF and immunomodulators was a risk in COVID. How would you consider removing the immunomodulator safely and monitoring the patient after you do so as a way to potentially mitigate that risk? And I talked a little bit about uh, how to do that, and I tied it in with the monitoring that Professor Sigmund presented so that you understood how to pull all this together into one strategy. So it was a very engaging session, and I think our colleagues, based on the questions and the chat that accompanied the meeting, which is a nice thing, by the way, in virtual meetings we have now where there's this real-time chatting going on and then Q&A can be much more engaging for everybody. Uh, so uh, I thought that that was a major, major important session at the meeting. But there were others that I think really stood out. Uh, yesterday morning, the session about how can we break the therapeutic ceiling in IBD. In other words, every one of our therapies that gets approved by the FDA and goes through the current clinical trial process can have about the same results. You know, if we're lucky, we're getting 30, 35% remission and 60% uh, response, but we can't seem to get more out of any of our treatments. So beautiful talks uh, by Steve Hanauer, Marla Dubinsky, Jean-Fred Kolumbel, uh, really uh, were able to emphasize some of the important concepts of, can we do more with our existing therapies? 
Is there a new treatment around the corner or on the horizon that's going to change all of this? Or is it just hopeless that we're treating everybody too late and we can't get ahead of the game here? So that was a great session as well. Going back, just if you don't mind, to one of the topics you brought about the COVID-19 and patients with IBD, how I wonder in those discussions, was the if people reflected on how patients were approaching it, were patients more hesitant to escalate therapy? Were they more eager to de-escalate therapy? I would assume there was a decrease in the number of follow-up colonoscopies after treatments just in the last year for you all. I don't know if that was something that was discussed as to how patient, uh, how uh, practitioners are really approaching patients with this delicate decision-making. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up, Matt. In the early days, we saw that there were a lot of patients who voluntarily discontinued their therapy under the, the fear that by being on these immune therapies, they were putting themselves at higher risk for getting COVID. And we had a conscious effort and a couple publications, certainly in gastroenterology, uh, including a clinical practice update that tried to drive home the point that being in remission on your therapies and staying in remission was a better approach than taking a risk at relapsing when healthcare resources were scarce and when being on steroids or getting admitted to the hospital was just the wrong thing for anybody. Uh, but we did see that that was happening, and we still to this day now, here we are 11 months uh, into it, we are still seeing patients who came off their therapy without notifying us and are now having relapses, unfortunately. In regards to the uh, appropriate use of endoscopy and colonoscopy, I don't think we've seen the full impact of what that is. Uh, by delaying surveillance exams, which are in are intentional, they're secondary prevention of colon cancer. By, by not doing them because we couldn't do elective procedures for a whole bunch of months, what we've been trying to remind our colleagues is that you need to go back to your schedules and figure out who missed their exams because we're going to see a second problem that will arise downstream which is that these patients are going to have a higher rate of dysplasia and cancer because they missed their exam and they fell off our radars. Uh, and in fact, this is not theoretical. This has been seen before when there have been pandemics and where healthcare is delayed or is unable to be delivered. You see the consequences. You even hear about it now in different ways, like what unfortunately and tragically was going on in California, where they were saying that you know, if a patient isn't expected to be revived from a cardiac arrest in the field, don't bother bringing them to the hospital. So um, we know that there's a lot of maintenance and important health care uh, that is being delayed, denied, uh, ignored. And we really have to pay extra attention when we see our patients that we do it. The other thing I want to emphasize is that our movement towards telehealth during COVID and the convenience of providing patients with this care, which I've fully embraced, two thirds or more of what I'm doing is virtual now, is not to replace the important understanding that you still need to worry about a patient who has perianal disease and maybe you couldn't examine them. Uh, the patient who had a known anal stricture that you haven't uh, been able to examine. Um, patient with a new set of symptoms or, or a new diagnosis of Crohn's or colitis. There are some situations where an in-person visit, I think, is mandatory and it's become too, I, I, this isn't a criticism of our colleagues, it's the reality of the world, but it's become very easy for us not to see people in person. And of course, it's further supported by patients' fear of contracting or being exposed to something. As we vaccinate and as the world opens back up again, which I firmly believe is going to be happening, I want to make sure we get people back in the office for that exam. And even though we all know that about 30% of visits in IBD are estimated to remain telehealth, which I fully support, we should have some parameters requiring people to have in-person visits at least once a year, certainly with new symptoms, and obviously when they have a new diagnosis. So I think we're going to need some more careful uh, parameters and boundaries on these types of providing uh, these this type of care. 
And you touched on vaccines, which is, you know, bringing us to the next phase of COVID and hopefully getting over with it. What is your message for patients who are uncertain whether they should get the vaccine? Is it effective with the immunomodulators, with the immunosuppressive therapy? Um, are they going to be at risk? So what is your opinion and your the data behind it and your message for providers as well as patients with IBD regarding the COVID vaccine? It's an important question, and I appreciate it. The first thing I want to say is that I have discussed this at length with a number of immunologists, and I've been fortunate to discuss it at length with a number of vaccinologists. I didn't even know that word existed before all this started. <laughs> and I also am a co-author uh, and helped with the IOIBD consensus guidance for vaccinating our patients with IBD. IOIBD is the International Organization for the Study of IBD. IOIBD had a consensus statement that came out in, in gastro on how to treat our patients during the pandemic. And now this consensus statement is in press in gut. And the bottom line is uh, that the consistent message from everyone we've spoken to is that our patients should get vaccinated. They should get the vaccine when it's available, that we do not worry that there's any unique safety concerns for this patient population, that if anything, being on steroids and maybe thiopurines may blunt the full immune response in terms of how much immunity you develop, but it doesn't mean that you're going to have an unusual side effect. There's no rational reason to think that it's gonna activate the IBD and make patients flare or get sicker. And the timing of the vaccine should be separate from when they've had COVID, but they should still get vaccinated if they've had COVID. We just recommend waiting 90 days after a COVID infection should be separated from when they're getting other vaccines. And we think the COVID vaccine should come before other ones. But for example, if you're gonna do a shingles vaccine, do that one after you finish the COVID series. Uh, not because there's some specific concerns about them interacting, but rather we don't wanna confuse one side effect from a vaccine with another. And uh, lastly, what we don't know yet is whether we should check titers after we do this. And there's a number of studies that are getting rolled out now where we might do so. I have enough patients of mine who are also healthcare workers who have been vaccinated to tell you anecdotally that there's nothing different about how they react regardless of the therapies they're on. Um, remember that the vaccines are reactogenic. They're supposed to induce an immune response. So a sore arm or feeling even quite ill for 24 hours after the second dose is expected. That's not a sign of, of badness that shouldn't even be called necessarily a side effect. And so we've been encouraging our patients to get vaccinated. Um, we also are reminding them that as much as we want them to get vaccinated in whatever tier we're calling it, it seems like every day there's a new stratification scheme, that they're not at increased risk for bad outcomes from COVID. In fact, some of the anti-cytokine therapies look like they may be preventing bad outcomes from COVID. So we're trying to reassure everyone that COVID is not worse than IBD. At the same time, we're telling them that we want them to get vaccinated as soon as possible. But frankly, that's because we want everyone vaccinated as soon as possible. Now, is there any special timing between medication administration, let's say the infliximab infusion and uh, the COVID vaccine? We have said no, that it shouldn't matter. Some people have said just pra pragmatically don't do them both on the same day. But to be honest with you, my message has been get it when you can, regardless of when your therapy is supposed to be administered. Do not delay your therapy. I've heard some unfortunate and I think misguided recommendations that have been made by non-IBD doctors to patients where they've said, don't take your immune suppressants for two weeks after you get your vaccine. There's no evidence to suggest that that's necessary or appropriate. And instead, they're putting the patient at risk for at least a delay in their maintenance therapy, which could result in, at worst, a relapse of their disease and loss of response to the therapy. So I, we really want people to stay on track and get their vaccine when it's available and make sure they get the two doses if, that's, if they're getting the messenger RNA vaccines and move forward. And so hopefully that'll help simplify things and people will get it done. I think that's I think overall, that's that's great advice just to get it when you can right now, um, the more people vaccinated overall. 
that's going in the right direction for sure. I'll just say, so, I'll say parenthetically that I've learned a lot about some people and how they <laughs> approach this and come to me and offered to donate money to the hospital if I could sneak a vaccine out. All sorts of things have started happening that, I hope it goes without saying that, that first of all, I don't even have control over such things, but second of all, I don't endorse them. Uh, I think we need to just continue to uh, work with leadership, uh, work to distribute and work with our institutions to be as efficient as possible. My wife is a school teacher and in Chicago at least, uh, Walgreens has made it available to all the school teachers. We're grateful. My parents are older. They're both patients mm -hmm. here and they, they're part of a lottery. And my dad got at, offered the vaccine for tomorrow and my mother hasn't been asked yet, but we're hoping she's going to. Did he try to give it to your mother? Was there like- No, there's, they can't do that. Okay. David, I did want to pick back up on one of the other threads that we were talking about, which is the discussion about uh, the glass ceiling. And is there something coming down the pipeline that's really going to revolutionize that 33%, that 60% numbers that you were citing? And I feel like we would do a disservice to our listeners if we didn't come back to that leading them leading them on there. So was there something that came out of that talk that you think is really promising for the future? Well, let me start by saying that I am an eternal optimist. And that's informed by the information that I have regarding therapies that are in development and things that are coming. And there are some low hanging fruit in breaking the therapeutic ceiling. And there are primarily how we can use our existing therapies better, using them earlier, sending patients who have clear fibrotic Crohn's disease with a stricture to surgery with the understanding that we have a much greater likelihood of preventing recurrence than we can reverse scar tissue. But I also recognize that there are some challenges. So people want to overcome what they view as dose limitations. If we could just give more of this drug, we would get where we need to go. And the truth of the matter is that that's not been shown by the available evidence in most analyses, including the most rigorous prospective studies with adalimumab most recently in both UC and Crohn's. Giving more adalimumab with measurable levels that were higher did not achieve more remission. So that's not the only answer. But the second part of this is, is there a breakthrough drug around the corner? And my answer so far is no. My answer is we have some very promising drugs coming that are going to make things uh, easier and are going to offer novel mechanisms like the S1P receptor modulators. These are drugs that will block activated lymphocytes from leaving lymph nodes and have a safety profile that looks like our anti-integrin drug, vetalizumab, and they're oral. So having small molecules that are safe and, mm. and organ selective is a wonderful thing to know. But is that going to break the therapeutic ceiling? No, unfortunately not. Are any of the second generation biologics that are coming? So we have uh, two or even three P19 inhibitors, which are pure IL-23 inhibitors. So it's, I call them the second generation ustekinumab therapies. Are they going to break the therapeutic ceiling? No, they may work better than our current drug used to kinemap, but they are not uh, going to be anything dramatic. There are some anti-fibrosis therapies in the works, but they're far off. And so that's not going to do it. I honestly believe that it's a combination of earlier diagnosis, treating to objective measures, and treating earlier with effective therapy that's going to move the needle the most for our patients. I continue to be shocked at how many patients are not in remission but don't even know what remission is. And I don't mean remission like the way we define it as form stool, no blood, no pain, uh, CRP normalized. I mean like just a patient knowing that they're supposed to feel well with IBD. It's amazing to me how much misinformation is perpetuated on the internet about if you have IBD, you're living near a toilet for the rest of your life. This is your this is what's going to be for you. And despite the fact that we say no, that's not what we're trying to do for people. If you go online, that's what you read about and that's what they come to expect. So they don't ask for more 
and some of our colleagues who are busy and who are doing what they can to take care of patients are primarily responding when the patient's having problems or complications. We need to change our mindset. You know, IBD needs to be treated the way rheumatoid arthritis is in the sense that we talk about disease modification. We want to modify the disease and change the natural history so that the outcomes are different. And we can do that. We can do it a lot more than we give ourselves credit for. We can do that a lot more than what we're seeing in real world experience. We just have to start pushing harder on everybody to expect more. And that has to come from every direction, from our physician colleagues, from our trainees, and of course, from patients who will learn to ask for more and be informed and empowered by this. But it's a very big task and we have a lot of work to do. You mentioned that there's misinformation out there from social media um, about IBD for patients. Now, where should we redirect our patients to? What are some good IBD GI scientific sources um, for patients? Well, I think the bigger issue, CS, and I'm glad you brought this up, is just the general lack of acceptance of both science and clinical trials and evidence and I've often said, and this is before the last four years in our country, that there's an interesting psychology that people are very willing to believe anecdotes of effectiveness for unproven therapies. So if they hear that somebody was on a certain diet and it did a great thing for them, that sounds good. I'm going to give that a try. And they're similarly very willing to accept anecdotes of harm associated with proven therapies. So they hear about one case of cancer that occurred with infliximab, and they therefore attribute it across the drug and aren't willing to, to take it, even though we have more than 2 million patient years of experience with that drug, that we know solid tumors are not a real outcome from it. So you have this dichotomy of the psychology of people who are suffering from chronic disease that you have to address. And now it's worsened by it's okay that if someone decides to write something in Facebook or to put it out in other formats uh, and forums to challenge what the experts are saying uh, or to ch charge that big pharma drives everything we do and the doctor's so biased that they can't possibly put your needs ahead of anything else, then you aren't going to be able to make progress with our patients. So I've actually written about this and described how I think the treat-to-target strategy is one way to help patients through this decision-making and to build trust. In this article we published uh, in 2015 in the Red Journal, we described how a patient who's afraid of a therapy or is unwilling to try the therapy you're recommending, or who comes to you and says, I really wanna go on diet for my management of my disease because I heard about this diet that I'd like to try. You don't have to say the evidence doesn't support it. You can say that, but you can also say, but I understand why you wanna try it. But by using a treat to target strategy, it means that you say, okay, why don't you give the specific carbohydrate diet a try, even though I haven't seen it work and the data don't support that it will, but you can try it. And in six weeks, let's repeat your CRP or your CalPro, or we'll do a colonoscopy and we'll together see if you're making progress. What I say to patients is I suspect you'll feel better on that diet because it's a limiting calorie diet that reduces a lot of the things that make people have symptoms but I don't think it's going to control your inflammation. So I'm just telling you up front that you might feel better. And of course, I want you to feel better, but I want you to feel better and for it to last. And that's a distinction that we have to come to terms with. So when the six weeks goes by and we reevaluate their disease activity, now they've been able to try what they needed to try or consider what they wanted to consider. And I'm hopeful that they believe that I was listening enough to what they wanted. I gave them the opportunity to try it but now we're on the same page because we have something that shows that they're still very inflamed and that we want to move ahead to the next treatment option. Similarly, when they're afraid of long-term side effects from therapies, I often negotiate and say, let's first see if this even works. And then we can talk again after you've been on it for two months, six months, you know, that the things you're worried about, even if they're extremely rare, but they're important to you, 
they don't happen until you've been on the therapy for a long time. And what we know is that the, the risk to benefit ratio changes once you're on something that's working. You know, that's um, been assessed in something called the standard reference gamble paradigm. Like how much risk are you willing to take versus how much mm -hmm. benefit? And when you reassess and somebody's now in remission feeling great on that therapy they were so afraid of, their perception of it changes too. So this is the art of medicine, sort of marrying the science of it that that I encourage people to look for role models and examples of how to do this in practice. So one of the things you said just as we were starting this conversation was that you learned more during this conference than you have at any conference in the last few years. So if you could, and I know from my experience, anytime I leave a conference, I tend to leave inspired and with different research questions kind of stimulated in my mind. So I'm curious, what research that you saw presented at this conference really inspired you or triggered thought for you about questions you want to begin asking? Well, there were many. I'll just pick a few. And it wasn't all just research. It was also um, just knowledge bases that I didn't feel like I knew very well. Lori Kiefer gave a terrific lecture where she talked about what does it mean to be well and the distinction between wellness and having a good score on the IBD quality of life survey instrument. Uh, and that gets to something that I've talked about for years that I said was functional remission. But she said it so much more eloquently and, of course, put the right psychological terminology and science behind it. And the idea of functional remission for patients isn't that their bowel is healed and they don't have any bleeding. Functional remissions means the patient can do everything they want to do and enjoy life. And now I can call it wellness and start to uh, approach the way I think about patient care and a holistic approach to people with these conditions with that in mind. So that was one major thing that shifted my thoughts about this. A second one was that the DINE study was presented. Uh, this was the DINE CD study. This was a dietary intervention study in Crohn's disease led by Jim Lewis from the University of Pennsylvania. It was multi-center. It was funded by the NIH and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Huge effort to enroll uh, about 100 patients uh, in each arm of a study that randomized them to a specific carbohydrate diet or to a Mediterranean-style diet, and actually provided them with the food to eat as well, which is really the way to do a dietary study. And the results weren't surprising to me. I just was still disappointed. I really hoped we would have more positive results. Basically, people on the diets in general felt okay but they didn't have improvement in their inflammatory markers. So a very small percentage actually had changes in their CRP or calprotectin. So it doesn't really advance the use of diet in our adult population with Crohn's disease very much. Now, the, their hands were tied a bit in the way the study was designed uh, and the outcomes of interest. But uh, I think it's important to have these data in our conversations with patients. Uh, and to acknowledge that patients feel okay on some of these diets, but they're not controlling inflammation. So I, I actually spoke to a new patient and their parents on the phone yesterday, and the patient's been on the specific carbohydrate diet for months and failing infliximab, steroids, and 5-ASA. And they don't want to give up on the diet. And it, I was able to quote the DINE study and as well as to remind them that our goal in managing IBD is not to torture our patients with things that don't work. So that was another major message and additional evidence about diet and the microbiome that was presented beautifully by Ari Levine from Israel. He's already published this uh, exclusion diet and the partial enteral nutrition diet in kids and there's ongoing work in adults so maybe we'll learn more about dietary approaches that are more uh, selective in what they remove or what they add. Uh, I thought there was some really nice work done on real-world evidence, looking at some longer-term outcomes of our therapies, and there was just such an engaged discussion about sequencing our existing treatments, how to communicate with patients about anxiety and depression, 
which I think is a very important component of IBD that we've struggled to get our hands around, as well as addressing the patient perspective a lot of this, which uh, we had patients on many of the panels, and we even had patients who were moderators for some of the sessions, and I thought that that added a beautiful dimension to this Congress. Now, you capture so many of the highlights and teasers for or recaps of the conference. Now, for those who were not able to attend, can they view those sessions? And what if they did not register? Can they still register now and view recordings? How can we access those uh, sessions you mentioned? Right. It's not too late. You can still sign up and they will be available for 90 days starting February 1. So every session, every lecture was recorded and they will be available. Uh, also, it's a perfect time for me to say, next year you should come. So, God willing, everything's going the way we need. Uh, the next year's Crohn's and Colitis Congress will be January 20 through 22 in the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas. It's already booked and confirmed, and I'm hopeful that we'll all be there in person. There were some great opportunities for young GIs who may have an interest in IBD or just people who have an interest in all things GI, but want to bone up on their IBD knowledge. There's a program called IBD A to Z that was run by Florian Reeder and by Christina Ha. And this is a program that uh, I just think is fabulous. It's for the newly initiated who are just trying to get their hands around IBD or for those more experienced, but want to just have a soup to nuts approach with a bunch of didactic lectures and then cases with case discussions by experts. Uh, that's a fabulous part of this meeting that people love to attend if they're new. And then there were some sessions for the more advanced folks. There were controversies in IBD led by Sonia Friedman and Russell Cohen, uh, where they talked about some of the challenges we face, the harder patients we face, and some patient discussions and cases there with the really big challenges that we all are faced with. And an appropriate multidisciplinary panel, including our surgical colleagues and others. And then there was the Lloyd Mayer Young Investigator Session, which is about career development and networking. There was a K Award mock session where they would review a K Award and tell you what's involved and how that goes and what it looks like. So many things for young folks, whether they're going into practice or whether they're gonna stay in academics. Everywhere you turn, there's gonna be an opportunity for you to interact and to network and to meet people. So don't be shy if you feel like, oh, I know I didn't focus on IBD yet, or I don't know where to go, or I'm not an IBD specialist, should I go to this meeting? Yeah, this meeting is for everybody. You just have to pick the track you wanna go into and, and then you'll find other people just like you. And this is a great way to learn. So that's wonderful. I'm, as an esophagologist, I'm actually genuinely excited about attending this conference yeah, next year. Yeah, because it's in Vegas, right, Matt? No, the Bellagio <laughs> was a little bit of a selling point. It was like kicking into like all those Oceans movies I watched when I was younger. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but David, as we wind down, you were highlighting a lot for the young GI and perhaps some of the trainees. As someone that is a little bit more senior at this point, what is the advice you give to young GIs, to trainees, as they're trying to figure out their career and as they want to figure out what they want to do? Well, I'm often asked this question and I, and I love talking about it. When I started in GI, we can go back to before I even knew I was gonna do GI, but let's fast forward to when I started in GI. I didn't know I was gonna do IBD and one of my mentors was Joe Kirshner, one of the godfathers of IBD. But I didn't know I was gonna do IBD. In fact, I was interested in colon cancer. I ended up in IBD because there wasn't anyone here at the University of Chicago doing colon cancer. And my other mentor, Steve Hanauer, said, well, why don't you study colon cancer in IBD? Because we have lots of IBD at the University of Chicago. So my first piece of advice to folks is um, follow the current of your career, meaning don't paddle upstream, don't go against the current. If there's something you're interested in or there's an expertise where you're training, take advantage of it. But my second piece of advice is that 90% of life is showing up. I think Woody Allen said that maybe in one of the movies or in life. The point is, if you're not sure or you have an interest but you feel unprepared, make sure you show up. Go to the meetings, introduce mm -hmm. yourself, 
I think gastroenterologists as a profession and as a population of people are so approachable because frankly, people who choose to deal with poop for a living have a sense of humor and they're nice people and they want to help you. Uh, certainly those of us who recognize that the young people in our field are the future. And I personally would like to see a better future than I'm living in right now. I want to see the future continue to thrive and grow in ways that I can't even imagine. So it's in my best interest, even if I was going to be selfish, to share as much as possible with everyone around me. So if I can't directly help someone who approaches me, I guarantee you that I'm going to know other people who might. And we're all in this together. So reach out to people, show up at meetings, sign up to be on committees, take advantage of all these incredible opportunities more than ever before, especially with how we all connect these days electronically. And just do it. Don't be shy. You know, stick your foot in the water and then dive in. So I really think you can find different ways to find you feel comfortable and find your place. And then you go forward from there. Uh, and it's not just this meeting, of course. AIBD has a wonderful junior person and trainee session that goes on. Of course, DDW has a wealth of things for our folks. ACG does. And then there's the IBD Summit that we organized for second year fellows. We have the uh, new IBD 101 that Lisa Malter from NYU created for first year fellows to learn IBD. I'll also mention that after you finish your training, let's say you want to get into IBD. Well, Cornerstones Health, which is a nonprofit that Marla Davinsky and I run, uh, created a program called IBD Excel. Excel is for people who are within five years of their training. It was based on the principle that I said, the steepest learning curve in your life is the day after your fellowship ends, when you see your first mm -hmm. patient. And that's what Cornerstone's Excel program is. It's about teaching people IBD once you're actually in the trenches and you say, oh my goodness, I just saw my first Crohn's patient and I know nothing or I can't remember what I'm supposed to do. Now it really has meaning to me. So that's what Excel is for. So just open your eyes. There's so many great opportunities. And if you're not sure, send me an email. Uh, reach out to CS, uh, reach out to anyone you know who might be interested in IBD, and they're going to give you some direction and you can get involved. If they reach out to me, I'll direct them to either of you. For IBD specific. You know, there's a website called LinkedIn that's all about how people are second two two steps away from somebody else, and that works too. It really does. And I mean this sincerely. Uh, we need good people in IBD. We need good people in esophagus. We need good people, period. You know, I've been all about, one of the areas I've spent time on more recently is creating opportunities for residents and medical students to try and get them hooked into GI and doing meaningful work. Not to make them stressed out because GI is so competitive, you should start when you're in high school. That's uh, crazy. But rather, high school, that's a, that's a little late, I think. Yeah, right? well, that, I mean, these days it is, seems like it. Seventh uh, grade, I think you have to start your first publication. The emails I get these days from people are ridiculous how early they're getting started. But rather, I want to create opportunities so that people can be engaged and get that hook. So they recognize the incredible privilege it is to be a physician and to be a gastroenterologist and to take care of patients with some of these problems and how much the field is moving and how much more there is to look forward to in the future. I'll tell you just a one last brief anecdote. Joe Kersner, who lived to be 102, I met him when he was 81. And I thought I was just meeting him to say hello because he was my grandmother's doctor and she told me to go find him. I never expected I would work with him for 20 years. Um, but Kersner used to tell the story that when he started working at the University of Chicago in 1935, the chairman of medicine said, Kersner, you can see patients and we're going to give you some beds in the hospital that are yours, but you have to do research here. And if you don't, you can go find another job. So he got assigned to work with an infectious disease doctor. And he was working alongside of this doctor in his clinic for about six months. And he turned to him and he said, you know, I'm really enjoying seeing patients and I'm learning a lot from you, but we aren't doing uh, talking about any research. And I know I have to do research if I'm going to keep my job. This is in 1935. The guy turned to Dr. Kersner and said, Kersner, all that we need to know has already been discovered. 1935. This is before penicillin. 
<laughs> so at that point, Kersner knew he had to go find somebody else to work with, and he walked over and worked with a guy named Walter Palmer, who had an interest in peptic ulcer disease. And he was doing research in peptic ulcer. He got his PhD in the alkalinization of the urine associated with the sippy diet and what they were doing to treat peptic ulcers. But in 1936, Kersner met a woman who had ulcerative colitis and died in front of him. And it changed his career. He decided to focus on people with inflammatory bowel disease. So the message that I've shared with other trainees is really, number one, don't feel overwhelmed and think all the good research has been done. How could I possibly do anything meaningful? Because that's not true. And of course, I believe that and I'm hopeful that you will think that way. And number two, um, follow the current of your career. You might meet a patient tomorrow that changes the direction you want to focus and, and you should pay attention to that. Don't be shy about it. You know, that's the way life goes. That's the way most careers go. Very, very, very few are a straight shot from point A to point B. Now, we ask our guests this at the end, and we put them on the spot. So what's the best piece of career advice that you received in your career that you can pass on? The best advice I got was from Dr. Kirzner, who said to me, don't adhere to dogma. And you know what? I had no idea what he was talking about at the time. I really didn't. And it wasn't until years later in reflecting on it that I came to understand a bit more. And part of that was because when you're learning medicine, dogma is part of how you learn. You know, people teach you what we know and what we do. But once you've learned that far for and mastered it, or at least come to appreciate it, you also learn the limitations of it. And when you challenge dogma is when you become original. Now that doesn't mean you ignore standard of care. It does mean, however, that what we do today is not what we're going to be doing tomorrow. And if you want to be one of the people that defines what we're going to do tomorrow, challenge dogma. Well, yeah, that's a pretty powerful piece of advice. <laughs> uh, and a challenge, and a challenge for the young trainees. So, uh, David, uh, where can people reach out to you on social media if they want to follow you, if they want to ask you a question? They want to engage. There's a few places, as you might not be surprised to hear. Uh, first of all, my email is drubin at uchicago.edu. My Twitter handle is ibdmd. I got that great Twitter handle because I was one of the first people on Twitter. And believe me, I paid for it because everyone used to tease me about being on Twitter. Now they all ask me, how do I use Twitter? Uh, but the other place they can go is that I do maintain a, a website for my lab group and I put some blogs on there and I share my presentations and pubs and a whole bunch of things. So you can go to rubenlab.uchicago.edu, check out my website. There's lots of different pieces of information there and perhaps that'll give you some uh, inspiration to other things you want to do. But I'd love to hear from anyone who hears this. This has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. It's really my pleasure, guys. And thanks for working on this podcast. I think it's a, a great addition to all the things that are going on in our field. And I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. It's been great. Thank you for listening to the AGA podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MD at Nina Nandy MD and at CSC MD podcast production done by resonant recordings. Don't forget to rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening and have a good one.